This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. What a fun win over those Michigan Wolverines. I'm Alan Williams, right here next to James DiVirgilio. we got a fun show. We're going to talk all about that Peach Bowl win for the Gators. We're going to talk a bunch of offseason news. And yeah, give you everything you need to know. James, what is up? What is up, ladies, gentlemen? I had a good time in the break. I'm sure you did as well. I got to meet some some podcast supporters. I met some of you in person at random areas. That's always a good time. I always enjoy meeting the listeners. And then, of course... Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. As held all season long, Alan, we managed to get a new patron every single break between shows, which is really amazing. So as always, if you like the content of this episode or of the shows during the season... Drop us a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or become a patron on Patreon. Our new patron from episode previous to episode now, James Barfield. Thanks so much for the dono. And the king of 2018, and now the king of 2019, thus far, still Alexander Leventhal. Thanks for your support. Uh, We greatly appreciate it. We do, indeed. James, there was a lot of excitement, I felt, in Gator Nation following this game. We were getting a ton of posts and comments about you know how good that everyone felt how excited they were how did you feel about this game were you pretty amped i'm gonna say no but you know for me being like the bull grinch there was there was something that was therapeutic about beating a team that was 4-0 against you and right. beating you like a drum every single time you played them so i was happy with it i think i i separate two thoughts one i can say it doesn't mean anything to me that we won the bowl game this way but it also doesn't mean that i can't feel good about it those two things can exist together and i think they did so i felt good about it and i also didn't go home thinking oh my goodness this means that we're going to be unbeatable and all of a sudden all these recruits are going to come out of the the woodwork and sign up for us i don't think it meant anything other than something we'll talk about later in this podcast, which was the most important thing from preseason to postseason, we'll cover. But as a single game, I did enjoy it. It was fun to watch us play. I was very impressed, Alan, with the effort our players gave. That was not lost on me. Indeed, I enjoyed it. I I think we were playing well, and you know the atmosphere was fun. I'll say this, though. My stomach wasn't in knots like it is for a big game against LSU or Florida State. I mean, I was more nervous in the second half of that Florida State game, you know, just because, like, it would have been so bad if we lost. This game was fun. I was enjoying it. It seemed like the players were enjoying themselves. You're right, and they were playing with a lot of effort. It it did seem like they wanted to be there. They were motivated. The coaching staff did a good job of preparing them. I thought it was great. Uh, so let's talk about the game itself and – and what happened, you know, we've talked a lot about bowl games really being some kind of function. There's this form, I guess you could take of like player motivation minus 
talent minus whatever and come up with some formula. You know, Michigan was sitting out a lot of guys that was noted. Some of their stars, Devin Bush, who is an incredible linebacker, killed us on previous things. Rashawn Gary, which I don't know if they missed him as much. Uh, some guys in the secondary. You know, it's a bowl game. They seem like a little down. They're missing some guys. Overall, let me let me just kind of break open this question. Really, I want to know what can we take away from this game. I mean, I know it's not you can't put the same kind of weight on it as you do a regular season contest, but still, I do think we want to draw some conclusions. So, in your opinion, what can we take away? We can take away that Dan Mullen wanted to win this game, which we said specifically could be found out by how often Emory Jones was on the field and he played four snaps and maybe and meaningful time, maybe 10 total at the end yeah. with a couple of garbage snaps. He barely played. He barely played. So that tells you that Mullen really, really wanted to win this game, which I think also makes sense given the narrative that we've been dealt. 0-4 against Michigan, beat us like a drum frequently, beat the previous coach like a drum. It's a good thing if you can win this game. And I think that's why, Alan, so many of our friends and family and casual observers like put a lot of stock into this win is if you were a big-time Michigan or Florida fan, this game probably didn't mean that much to you. If you were the casual observer, this was like a big deal. Oh, don't you feel great about Michigan? Isn't this some sort of scenario? And I think that does matter for positive momentum behind your brand. It does. I think Mullen threw his weight behind that. So I think what I take away from this is Mullen and the staff absolutely wanted to win this game. I think Michigan's team, just hearing a lot of the reports, reading a lot of the articles, was conflicted as to how they were going to play the game. I'm sure the players that were playing wanted to win, but you could even see during the game some of the seniors that were really frustrated with what was going on with the play. You could read some of the articles like Chase Winovich saying that essentially he was pretty frustrated that he couldn't convince some of these guys to play this bowl game. You know, They wanted to win. You're a leader. You're a senior. You're this. And so I think it was a, it was a tale of two different teams. And that's what I take away from this. The interesting question for me, Alan, will be, will Dan Mullen be able to maintain this kind of bull performance from his team in the future? I highly doubt it. I think if we become a team that starts to win nine or 10 games every year, you will see us become like Michigan, where if we lose to Florida State or we lose a last second game in the ICC championship game and we're in a bowl game, we will not be the team that's giving everything we can to rise I think that's what I'm taking away mostly from this is it fits the bowl formula. But again, Dan Mullen and staff, they really wanted to win the game and they won the game, which you still have to do. Uh, and I think that was evidenced by how little Emory Jones played. There was no real reason not to play Emory quite a bit in this game. And they didn't do it because they played the guy that's played all year long, tried to get a win. And obviously Felipe Franks at the end was, was overcome with emotion. He had a, a heck of a roller coaster season emotionally. He's been dogged by a lot of people, including myself, and he finishes off a 10-win season, crying on the bench at the end. So a lot of feel-good moments coming out of this bowl game. For sure. I and mean, you can tell that there's a big difference when you add in coaching and motivation. This is largely the same groups of players from last year at the beginning of the year. Uh, and Michigan crushed us. This is basically the same guys along the offensive line. Michigan is obviously missing a couple of guys, but... Still a very formidable defense, one of the best in the country. And not that we won the game, we freaking smashed them. And by the end of the game, we can tell we really wanted it more, and we were playing much harder. Uh, one of the plays I'll remember from this game is that P. Ryan run, where he looked as fast as I've ever seen him on that third and 20, busting out for a 50-yard run. It didn't look like the Michigan guys wanted any piece of him on that run. Uh, and so... 
you know, can I really blame him for that? I don't know. Uh, I'd be maybe a little frustrated if I were a Michigan fan. But this wasn't a game where we squeaked out and won on some weird plays. We own this game, uh, especially in the second half. Uh, and so I think I want to feel good about the fact that we dominated a Michigan team. You know, even if they didn't care, they're going to show up and play on that day. And I, we talk a lot about, you know, the caring actually comes in, not just in the day of, but in the preparation. Are you training? Are you eating right? Are you watching film? Are you amped on this game that whole month? Because you could want to try on the day and, you know, maybe you just don't have it in you because you haven't been wanting it the whole month leading up to it. Uh, before we really get into the game, James, what else will you remember from this game, like maybe five years from now? Probably not a whole lot, if we're being candid. I can't recall many things that happen in our bowl games that aren't super significant. But if I remember something five years from now, Alan, it will be one of two things. Either this was the beginning of a Dan Mullen era that has launched us into the next level, or this was the beginning of of an era that has us somewhere nice, but not amazing. Um, I think this first year with 10 wins is fantastic. We're going to unpack more about what that means after we analyze the game. I think that's the most important thing to discuss at this point in time of the year anyway. But I think that's probably what I'll look back on. And then secondarily, I think I'll look back on the death of the bull system. I think this was the year, Alan, the tsunami got big enough that they can no longer ignore it with so many prominent players sitting out the bulls. I've been saying this every year we've done the podcast, so I suppose I feel good that the public opinion is coming over to me. But even around my Christmas dinner table, when discussion turns to football, no longer are the 60-somethings upset about people sitting out bowl games. Even they have come to accept that, you know what, it makes sense. These are exhibition games. And they would have totally and ardently defended the the importance of a bowl game five years ago. So I think maybe, if nothing else, this was the year where Florida had everybody play in this bowl game and Michigan did not. And what I might take away from this is that's probably the end of maybe a bowl game era. I don't I don't know if you'll see that happen. And also, like we said, this could be could be the hallmark of the beginning of what we remember from this 2018 season is that it launched Dan Mullen uh, into a, in a real spot as a top coach. And he's not there yet, but I think he's starting to gain traction across the nation as, oh, wait, this guy can coach. And that's certainly the beginning of something. I think I'll remember, if I remember specific plays, it would be some of those runs. I mentioned the PRN run, the Franks runs that we ran for a lot of yardage on this Michigan team that they weren't used to. And we actually normally don't have a lot of big explosive running plays. And we had several of them in this game. And yeah, you know, I don't know that these games all kind of run together. I mean, how many times have we played in the Outback Bowl or the Citrus Bowl? But this is a big time bowl and we haven't won one of these games in a little while. So it felt good to win, especially if it's the beginning of something. I think we'll remember that um, fairly well. And, you know, this game was kind of funny. It, it was only 13 to 10 at half. This wasn't a blowout from the beginning. So let's walk through a little bit of, you know, how we got to where we got to at the end of the game. And let's start with offense. We, when you watch this game, what did you notice about our game plan? Oh, we weren't exactly sure how we were going to attack Michigan. We said on the pod that we thought that Dan would have a multitude of ways to do so. And it really depended on what his preference was. It's not surprising what he settled on. What's surprising to me is how Michigan chose to play defense against us. I think a lot of that, Allen, is is the product of an, a very aggressive defensive coordinator who relies on elite athletes, and he was missing them. Missing your middle linebacker is not something to sleep on. 
see Florida versus Kentucky without David Reese. So if you just think, oh, no big deal, they roll on the next guy, that is not true. And Devin and Bush Michigan, is really unique to what they Devin do. Devin Bush is extremely unique. And the next guy, oh, by the way, also got hurt. So they're down to their third guy. So don't sleep on that for a lot of the run plays and the things we stole. But the game plan on film was especially evident early, and we stuck with it really the entire game. We wanted to just sprinkle in enough passes to keep them honest. But the real goal was to spread them out and run the ball, especially with a lot of Felipe Franks, which we did. Felipe Franks had one of his best games running the football as far as effectiveness in yards per carry. And I think that really, really kept them off balance. Alan, I think in the game plan, something you saw us do a lot, which we have not done throughout the year, we always have some sort of new recall, is we frequently line up four wide receivers on one side of the field. And we kind of varied their formation a little bit, which is really very high school-ish. But amazingly to me, Michigan was putting five guys there to defend our four receivers as if we're some sort of passing juggernaut. And really what that told you, Alan, is they had no respect for Felipe Franks running the ball. Absolutely none. The point to where they felt like they could play a man down and accomplish that. And you know what? They probably could if they had Devin Bush. But without Devin Bush, that did not work out so well. So I thought that was something to take away game plan wise. And I think Dan Mullen accurately predicted that, which is impressive. I think he read the tea leaves correctly. I think he had an excellent game plan. And they did exactly what we wanted them to do with regards to defending us. And that's that's a sign of a of a great coach. And we had, you know what, 258 yards on the ground against this Michigan defense, top defense in the country. Granted, not the same guys, but either way, that's a heck of a day for a Florida team that struggled to run against top-level teams. For sure. And you know, you can tell that Felipe running the ball had been really preached to him because he they even gave him the option to audible to it, which he chose to do a couple of times. I think one of his bigger runs, he, you know, transitioned into that play and you, yeah you could see what he was looking there's no way in the middle of the field and you know one time they tackle him another time we blocked it up supremely well and we got the touchdown out of it you know we, I thought we threw to the running backs well which needed to be a part of the system and you know we we couldn't be our normal kind of game plan selves where we were just trying to be efficient on offense we had to be explosive and we were if you look at our metrics we got a lot of our yardage on big plays, which normally is not, you know, what Dan is trying to do all the time and how he wants yardage. Uh, but we weren't trying to be as efficient. We were hitting more plays downfield. We were trying to break bigger plays, and we needed to because I don't think we could execute down the field against a defense like Michigan over and over again. We needed those big plays in big situations, and we largely got them on, on some big down distances as well. So that was impressive to me that we were able to and that we knew we needed to. So good job by the coaching staff and then good job by the players executing. And I have to say hats off to that offensive line. You know, this was a group like largely the same guys, like I said, a year, almost two years ago, who got manhandled by Michigan, manhandled. And they largely held their own. That first drive, it was like, oh, no, here we go again. Felipe had no time. But generally, he, you know, unless the play took too long to develop, he didn't feel a lot of pressure. We got the ball out on time. We opened up holes for the running backs. It didn't look like Felipe was going to run for his life like I thought he might. Uh, so that was impressive job by that unit. And again, I think line play can very much be like who wants it, where's the desire, the grit, and effort. And I'll give a shout-out to John Hevesy for continuing to coach that group and turning them into a group of guys who could play like that. I thought the play calling, as we do every segment here, play calling our way into points was especially evident here. You have the Franks touchdown run, which was a play call, a play generated to create the space. You have the Tony end around on fourth down. Great call. Which was basically a touchdown. Then you have the Siante Lewis 
a big play. The game's kind of tightening up in the fourth quarter. It's a third down, you know, maybe 10 minutes, 12 minutes left in the fourth, and he get, we get him wide open on a busted coverage uh, that essentially was drawn up to get them that way. It was a little little in-out rub route where they have two guys guarding east-west, and we kind of make it look like we're going to run east-west, we're going vertical. Just really good stuff from Dan Mullen at those big times. And, and all year long, Alan, we've, when we've won games, this part of the ledger has been full, which it was for this one. And we've lost games. We haven't had a whole lot to talk about there because we have been unable to kind of manufacture those points. And a large reason for that, Alan, is, is we still struggled passing the football, primarily in the red zone. And it's kind of hurt us all year long. We get in the red yeah. zone, the first, especially in the first half you saw that. Michigan just knows we really can't throw the ball into the end zone, nor do we really even want to. And we try to run it with Frank, try to run his little short passes. So I think that Mullen's done a great job scoring despite that deficiency. You could imagine, Alan, what we could be on offense if we had a quarterback who could reliably make you defend the pass. Then running the ball in the end zone is much easier. We score more touchdowns. But all in all, I thought that play calling was great, and I thought we struggled in some other predictable areas. Frank's finish is 13 of 23, 173 yards, one touchdown, a very Frank-like stat. But he does have 14 carries for 74 yards and a touchdown. And that, I think that, to me, was the main difference in the game. If you imagine Frank's with 14 carries and 10 yards— like he's had in a lot of games this year, especially before he kind of went on this heater, if you will. Uh, we probably don't win this game. I mean, he set up a lot of plays with his legs, and a lot of that was also play design. So hats off to the staff. And for Franks, I think he really improved as a runner. This is, I thought, his best game as a runner by Certainly. far, looks-wise. He actually looked like, oh, he actually looks like a competent runner at some times. So coaching staff never gave up on this guy. Uh, and I think you saw the fruits of that all the way in this bowl game. Well, I think they've also figured out what types of plays does he run well. And it's those power plays where he just can get ahead of steam and go forward. You know, at the beginning of the year, they were having him run more of the zone read. You know, having him try to turn the corner is not his specialty. Now, they can do it if if they totally fool people and they deceive it. And once he gets ahead of steam, he's, you know, he's pretty fast. It's, I think, uh, so who was it on Twitter? Um, maybe every day should be Saturday. I was talking about, it's like a, a loping giraffe. You don't feel like it's running that fast until it's it's upon you and then you're crushed. Uh, you know, he gets up to speed at 6'6", you know, in those long strides. He's moving. It takes him a second to get up to speed there. He's not like a quick twitch athlete. But they figured out how to run him effectively. And, you know, hats off to the staff for figuring that out as well. Let's talk about defense. I'll say, you know what, I felt like... They did a really nice job against stopping what Michigan likes to do and making Michigan play a little left-handed here. You you didn't see a lot of busted coverages. I, I'm trying to remember even one of them. There might have been one or two, but nothing glaring. And you would have thought going into the game that maybe that, that was where they were going to kill us. Tight ends up the middle, some trick plays on the back end where we're not clear on our assignments. And look like they had that down pretty well. Yeah, we talked a lot about our game plan being very aggressive coming into this game. That's exactly what it was. We played a ton of cover one, played a lot of man-to-man underneath. Uh, we blitzed the heck out of our cornerbacks, which is literally exactly what we said. So we yeah. play called this correct. Not that that was a surprise, but I think that's also wisdom over how we defended Michigan the last time we played them, which was not that way. I think we did make them play left-handed, and all of that worked because, of course, like you said, Alan, we stopped the run. But part of the reason we we stopped it wasn't just because they're missing their NFL running back. We committed enough numbers to make it happen. Sure. And then lastly, and most importantly, for the first time all year long in the how we were successful category here, we have what you mentioned. 
the safeties were tremendously successful. Now, Sean Davis played quite a bit in this game, which I think shows you they like him as our best cover safety. But mainly, we actually rolled our safeties more than we have all season long, which I think tells us that those extra bowl practices allowed the coaches to feel much more confident in getting the safeties to actually disguise our coverage. And there is no doubt that messed with Michigan. It absolutely did. Uh, couple of that with a hero play by Chauncey. Yeah, that was amazing. Uh, what a phenomenal pick. I mean, talking about putting on your NFL. But even in even in in that scenario, our safety was running right with that, right with that that uh, that poster in the middle. So fantastic defense, I thought by the safeties. They still passed for quite a few yards against us. But Michigan passing when they can't run is is such a failed offense for them. They're not going to put a lot of points on the board, which is what you saw. That offense is predicated upon running the ball. They did play a ton of the two tight end set that give us so many problems. And I thought the big difference here was they couldn't run out of it, which did not allow them to set up the pass out of it. And when they did pass, we were making it very, very difficult for them with frequent pressures, especially from the weak side. We brought a lot of weak side blitzes, uh, which I think if you're a Michigan fan, it's probably pretty frustrating that's a very basic scenario. Most teams will blitz their free corner when you're playing weak. And Michigan looked like they had no clue what was coming on two or three or four different plays in that game on third down. However, um, I thought what I said, 200 yards, Alan, was my, I said 200 yards or less and we could win this game rushing and they rushed for 77. That's amazing. And again, I don't, I don't care that their NFL running back is out. Maybe they get 110 because of him. They still have guys back there. Still have guys back there and predominantly it's the O-line. And fine, give them 40 more yards. That's a phenomenal day for our defense because that is how you beat Michigan. And like you said, last year they ran all over our faces. And this season we flipped the script. I love it. I love CJ Henderson blitzing off the corner. He's so dang effective, and I bet we would do it a lot more if we felt more confident in the guys behind him. So look for that next year for him to get a lot more opportunities to do that because he's dynamic. He's so fast at getting to the quarterback, and his timing of that is so good for a guy who doesn't really do it that often. There's been a lot of big plays by him this year. And then, you know, I mentioned what we're going to remember. Hopefully, if I do remember this game, I'll remember Chauncey's last game. That pick, the pick six, played excellent all game. And really just a great into a you know what turned out to be a great career for him as a Gator. Uh, excellent job by the defense overall. Weird stuff on special teams. Maybe one of our worst special teams performances. I, Tommy Townsend, two blocked punts. I mean, if that and a different kind of game where that's a blocked punt into a safety could have swung a game. The first one, it looked like he was... I don't know, doing like a half rugby. That was some weird stuff out of us on special teams. We have done that quite a bit throughout the season where Tommy half the time will take that slow walk to the right punt scenario. And it's clear that Michigan had picked this up on film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and punt team is really interesting stuff. My expertise is certainly not special teams, but I've had enough conversations with guys throughout the years who play it to know that, that some coaches tend to treat it very simplistically. Uh, and what I mean by that is they telegraph what's going to happen. So based upon how the punt team lines their feet up, the receiving team will know, oh, they're in punt block or they're in punt safe or they're in punt aggressive or they're going to punt right or they're going to punt left. I have no doubt that there must be something we tipped to Michigan on that play because when you watch it on film, they jailbroke it. And they must have showed us, and I'll give you an example game theory wise. So let's say Michigan comes out and they show us with their alignment that they're in punt safe. That causes our guys to go to a punt safe alignment. And then Michigan snaps out of the punt safe alignment on hike and blows up our spot, knowing exactly where the ball's going. That's definitely what happened. 
the second blocked punt just just looked like poor execution. Yeah. That was not a scheme thing, just a total failure of execution at that stage of the game. And then outside of that, I thought Tommy, of course, had a predictably really good punting game, minus one, you know, or so average punt. And then McPherson, the silent assassin. Perfect what on the what year. a year. Yeah. What a phenomenal year out of a field kicker. And also, Alan, what a weird year to have 10 wins and not really need your field goal kicker. Like, it's hard to think of a kick he made that mattered. They all mattered. But it's just weird that we didn't need one when it mattered. You almost, you almost just forgot about him. But what a phenomenal kicker this guy is. I mean, he just goes about his business. Yeah, the fact that we have him for two more years at least, and you know, kickers usually will stay there for full years because they're not worried about getting hurt. Uh, such a find by this coaching staff to like, get him in there and get him ready to go as a true freshman. You know, hopefully he won't go through some kind of slump like that some kickers do throughout their time because it's it's a tough gig, but bright future for him certainly. Uh, yeah, special teams. You know, you felt like that could have played a big factor. Thankfully. It didn't really affect the outcome of the game because our, our players responded each time to that. So that's something to obviously clean up in the offseason, take a look at whatever they showed us that we don't that doesn't show up in a bigger spot in a bigger game. But all in all, a great year on special teams. Much, much, much improved. So I can't kill them for a couple block punts in a ball game. I'm sure that they'll get that cleaned up. Any other bright spots for you in this game? We mentioned Chauncey, who's the brightest spot. And then the coaching staff, which we've talked about a couple of times. Exemplary job prepping this team, uh, minus the aforementioned special teams play and a couple of plays there. But really brilliant job. I think you saw this team progress between the end of the season and even the bowl game. And they had already progressed a lot after that Missouri loss. So hats off to them. We actually have, Alan, a coaching staff that can coach and develop players. It's nice to say that. It's been a while since we've been able to say that. And we will talk a lot more about that as I enter us into our final thoughts category here. So we're going to take a look at a couple of interesting things here, Alan, and I'll let you start us off. Sure. So I came across this stat somewhere on the old interwebs. This is our sixth 40th point game of the season. So six times we've scored 40 points or more. We only had six of those over the previous six seasons. So we had as many this year as we had over the last six seasons that's one of the biggest jumps for us in points in a long time. And obviously we made it an also, we made a huge jump in yards per play. And that's a stat that's not super well known, but it's, I think a really informative stat, like how many yards you're averaging per play over the game and over the season. We made the biggest move of anybody, the biggest improvement year to year from last year, to this year. So obviously I, I think we both expected the offense to improve this year. It could only really have to improve did this exceed your expectations of improvement though it did it absolutely did and i think part of that is a team award here yards per play is not just offensive productivity in fact there's no real perfect way to measure like there is in basketball you can accurately and nicely measure plus minus or advanced offensive stats in basketball because you have a lot of possessions and it's easy to kind of look at what lineup produces what and you have a very clear offense versus defense situation in football, so much of this is situational, especially in college. Do you have the lead? Are you playing at home? What's the field position been like for you? What's the punting scenario been for your team? What's the momentum? And a lot of that stuff does factor into yards per play. But regardless, I would not have imagined us to have taken such a large step forward in a pure offensive stat like yards per play. It does it does show a tremendous improvement in execution. 
And as we've said all year long, Alan, this team has exceeded even our very high expectations. We've said the minute Mullen got hired, this guy's a very good football coach. No one is doubting his ability to coach football. But this has to surprise really almost everyone. If you were out there and you thought you were going to see this kind of improvement and this kind of execution with a flawed roster that we had, congratulations, because I do not think we saw this coming. And that's one of the most exciting things for me. I had questions about Mullen's ability to run an offense without his prototypical quarterback. I still have questions about our ability to pass the ball, not just because of Franks, but because we haven't seen a Mullen team do it before. That's not necessarily his fault, but it's something we'll need to see. But after this season, I I can tell you one thing. He's got to be one of the top three or four coaches when it comes to resource management, roster development, and building a team to run plays that's comfortable for the personnel in all of college football. And that, to me, is where that yards per play stat jumps off the page. Yeah, the number of you know, and even points per game, you know, that can come from defense, that can come from weird things. But the fact that we didn't do it over the last six seasons or even the last decade is crazy. You know, 40 points is a lot, but it's not an obscene amount. We're not talking about 50 or 60. And to cross that barrier, even if you look at the 30 point games, we, we had a ton of those this year. So I thought we'd improve. I did not think we'd improve as much as we did. Like you said, I, I'm super impressed about how much he got out of this particular group of guys in his first year in the system. You would expect that to only improve as guys get more comfortable with what we're trying to do with the individual plays themselves and their assignments in that. Uh, Yeah. So great job by Mullen, Hevesy, you know, all the other guys on the offensive staff, you know, it's really a shared effort. I think getting those guys ready, but Mullen obviously as the head guy is going to get, you know, most of the credit and then most of the blame if it doesn't go well. So that's a ton of improvement, way, way exceeding my thoughts. Like I, I did not think we'd get to that kind of level where we could put up 40 points on a team like Michigan, even in a bowl game. So hats off to them. Okay. A stat also came across Felipe Franks threw six interceptions this year. When I read that, I was like, really? That feels low. When I just, if I just think about his performance, and you asked me, how many interceptions did you throw? I was like, well, not a ton, but I wouldn't have said as low as six. Does that surprise you? It does and it doesn't. It doesn't because after week one, we got on and broke down Felipe Franks' play and said, you know what? This guy still looks like he's kind of stuck, which proved to be true. But he also looks like he's learned how to throw the ball away. And in fact, I think our exact analysis was it was one read, throw the ball away. And that is that is completely true. Now, I'm not demeaning that at all. You can look all around college football, and there are a lot of coaches that would implore their quarterbacks to make one read and throw the ball away, especially if you have a team that's more talented than half the teams you play every single year from the start. And he did that. And not only did he do that, Alan, this is a guy who at the beginning of last year against Michigan ran around like a chicken with his head cut off, would fumble the ball on his own, would would take his eyes off looking downfield, would have no idea where he was going and what he was doing. To a guy this year who took a lot of pressure. You know, our offensive line was not phenomenal at pass blocking. Uh, he was constantly facing duress in the pocket. His pocket presence is still subpar. It's not perfect, but he would keep his eyes downfield and he would have enough to know that if he did escape, the best decision was to throw the ball away. And that's why you're not throwing interceptions. And that is a huge testament yet again to Dan Mullen's ability to improve quarterbacks. He can get the most out of the guy that he has on his roster. And he can do that because Dan Mullen's strategy is, Alan, as we have said ad nauseum on this podcast, very risk averse. It's conservative. It's consistent. The plays are simple. All he's asking his quarterback to do is to be a willing runner and to throw rather simple passes. 
that are rather easy to read pre-snap. And I think for Franks, he figured out the passing tree read in his mind was going to be slow. Therefore, I have to drill this guy to throw the ball away. Don't be a hero. Don't make plays. I'm not going to get mad at you for throwing the ball away. And largely, he never really did. Yeah, he didn't make a lot of dangerous attempts either. I don't. I, I can think of a few, but not an overwhelming amount where he threw the ball into dangerous situations and it probably should have been picked or could have been picked or if the defense played it right. When he threw the ball down the middle of the field, it was largely a good decision. He made a lot of throws to the outside, a lot of shallow crosses. Now, the downside of this type of quarterback play is just what you saw, you know, as he mit- he didn't see Kadarius Tony coming wide open with no one on his half of the field in the end zone, which w- was kind of a crucial play at that time. I think that's why that was the limitation for us and why we lost a few games that we did. Now, he got some yardage running the ball because he just said, okay, I'm going to run it. There's nobody open. Now, that works for you most of the time. It definitely limits your ceiling as a as a passer. And, you know, even a simple thing like keeping your eyes upfield where someone's going to be wide open. Now, again, I would rather him run the ball than force a throw into the end zone. But he also misses some obvious things as well. Uh, so that I think that six interceptions, especially where he started at the beginning of the year, is a pretty profound stat. And I think it's a key to our success as an offense and as a team that he only threw. And if he had 12 interceptions, which I don't think would have been crazy number, it would have been lightly high, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been insane. I think we would have lost another game or two, potentially. So good job by Franks. Good job by Mullen. That stat did surprise me um, and in a positive way. I think that if he can continue that line and get slightly better at the other end, you know, like looking up and seeing a wide open Kadarius Tony, that will pay dividends as well. It will be a very interesting offseason to say the least about what happens with Felipe Franks. And we're not going to belabor this or even talk any more about it on this podcast. We will do a mailbag episode later in the spring where you can ask us all the questions you want about players, personnel, and the upcoming future. But for now, I think, Alan, you and I both agree that Franks is still not the guy we'd want him to be. We've kind of reached maybe his ceiling. We can begin to hope that he'll learn tremendous things in the offseason still seems very unlikely to me because typically by now you'd get it. But either way, keep an eye on it because it's, it seems to me, Alan, that it's still Franks' job to lose here. And you might see more of the same next year uh, with some slight improvement. Only time will tell. Let's talk about Dan Mullen. Let's talk about the man of the hour, the man of the season, the 10-win man. Hard to get 10, win, 10 wins as a college football coach. Do not sleep on that. That is not easy, even at Florida. Is this Mullen's biggest win, this Michigan win, primarily because of the fact that it gets us the 10 wins, it caps off the season. It beats an opponent we've never beaten before. It was on national television. People watching. Is this his biggest win so far? I'm tempted to say yes, but I, I think it might be LSU just for where it came in the point of the season and, and what we benefited from that, maybe potentially recruiting-wise, national profile. They were coming off a win against Georgia. That was a stellar, stellar win. This is close to it, though. Uh, for all the things that you said, I, I remember – you know, just a few days ago, we were kind of messaging with the king himself, Alexander Leventhal, about you know how big a win was this, and there there is a lot of intangibles about this win that they're hard to pin down and hard to quantify. You know, you talk about recruiting. You know, recruits aren't going to probably switch their 
pledge from somewhere to Florida because we beat Michigan in a bowl game. But it's kind of the atmosphere around the program is even as people are considering Florida, it's like, oh, yeah, Florida, you know, just a feeling that you think about them. Maybe like I don't want to steal the Texas phrase, but we're back, you know, feels like we're back a little bit. Not that, you know, we're going to come out and win a national championship next year, but that we're not going to fall on our face. I don't think that this team is going to turn around and win four or five games next year. That doesn't seem like possible under Dan Mullen. So I, and a win like this on a high profile day where, you know, the college football world is paying attention. I, I do think that has a lot of value and it has, you know, some things that maybe we'll look back on and be like, well, that was a piece of the puzzle that moved us forward as a school, as a program, as a recruiting force. Maybe not. It's hard to say. Uh, so I don't think this is his biggest win, but it's close. What about you? Yeah, not his biggest win. I think that definitely goes to LSU, especially because LSU beat the defending national champions UCF and we beat LSU and did the transitive property, then we are the national champions. Hang yeah. a banner. Hang Put a banner, up. fly a flag. Uh, but I think I think LSU was huge. I think Mississippi State was actually really big as well. Even at the time, they hadn't figured themselves out yet. If you looked preseason on the schedule, almost everyone would have had that as a loss. There were lots of big and important wins. I think this one, Alan, is just a, an, an exclamation point or a continuation of what we saw with the end of the season, with the win against Florida State, right? With the way we sort of trended upward. I think this continued for us. And Michigan, on the other side, I think continued downward. Horrible game against Ohio State in a game that they finally had everything kind of set up to win for and then laid a huge egg against us. So maybe if nothing else, it, it's, a, it's a nice exclamation point on this season but I do think like you said public narrative wise probably his biggest win because the casual person is paying attention on the holidays because their family and friends who are football fans are there and it's a talking point and so the average Joe in the state of Florida or somewhere else is aware of the fact that Dan Mullen had a good season and they probably were not aware that we beat LSU so if you want to look at it that way that's a backdoor way of saying it does mean more than what us purists are looking at all right Let's ask the most important question, and I'll tee you up here. Before the season, we asked what we wanted to see out of Dan Mullen. This season would be a success if, and both of us had basically mentioned that style was more important over win-loss. We wanted to see this team have a good style, improve on offense, do things that showed us they were better. But secondly, and most importantly, and we both unanimously agreed that this team had to get better as the year went on. We had had eight or nine straight years of a team that just flat out did not improve from game one to game 13. What are your thoughts on Mullen's first season? As you look back and you put you put a stamp on it, thoughts on it? I think if you're a results person, a bottom line person, this was a tremendous success. You know, 10 wins is great no matter what. Now, that's tough to do. That's tough to accomplish in a, in a league like the SEC. Uh if you're in the American conference, like UCF, it's not that hard. Um, shouts out to those guys. So really successful. You know, I think in our style versus substance category or stylistic over just flat results, maybe we underachieved slightly. You know, we didn't come out, you know, the, I guess it's kind of Scott Strickland's met metric, you know, make Florida football fun again. It's fun because we're winning and we're, and we're putting up more points than, you know, that we have been, or it's not a slog on offense, but it's not beautiful on offense yet. And I, I don't know that we're going to get there until a couple of years, maybe if ever, but I think we can. But this season was so successful for all the reasons that you just mentioned that we improved, 
that the team seemed like they came together. They bought into what Dan and his staff were, were selling, were preaching. So on that metric, you have to go, this was a success. It's even a higher success than I pegged for us. Um, and so exceeding my expectations thoroughly. And I, I think the future is bright. I, I think I am after this game even more encouraged about where we're at. You know, and like we talked about the bowl game, how much can you take away? Not a ton, but it does move us forward. It is a better uh, note to end on than getting waxed by Michigan at the end of the year, like we did a couple years ago. So I think if you're looking at Mullen's first season, I'm going to give him an A for the season. I, I think you, know, you really couldn't ask much more out of him. You know, a win over Georgia would have put that in the A plus category, probably. Uh, from where this team started to where they ended up uh, is a huge testament to the the effect that this coaching staff has had on them. Before the year, I said ten wins would have been the absolute ceiling I had put on this team. I didn't even give us a shot to get to eleven. So for me, by default, on the field results, where we went, it hits my number one metric of progressing throughout the year, which proves the coach knows how to coach. It's crazy to me, Alan, how few college football coaches truly improve their teams from start to finish. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why I so favor an 18 playoff um, is because I'm such a, a fan of that theory that your team should not be the same in week three, four, or five as it is at the end. It just should not be. Your team should get better. If you want to look this up, look at what Bill Belichick does with the Patriots when they tend to struggle in November. And then they slay it in December and January. That's a real thing. You should improve. So I feel thrilled that we can say that about our own team. That's an outstanding success. I give him an A-plus in that regard. Style-wise, the question is still unanswered. And it's not going to be answered for me personally, Alan, until Felipe Franks is no longer our quarterback. We're limited there. He's done a phenomenal job managing him. We'll be able to talk about the things I mentioned in the preseason episode how we're going to handle playing elite competition, what it's going to look like passing downfield, how aggressive we are when we have a quarterback he trusts. We're not there yet. But lastly, and this has nothing to do with his first season on the field. That's why I'm separating them. A-plus for that. The major question that is still unanswered and looks to be, you know, depending on how you look at it, maybe not in the right direction or maybe trending up if you look at further recruiting classes, is in fact our recruiting. We still have really no top 100 players. We're probably going to get at least one before this cycle's over. So we get one, maybe two. In this current cycle, we do have a couple in the upcoming cycles. But as it stands right now, it's hard to imagine, even as good as Dan Mullen is on the field, that we are going to be able to beat two teams every single year, one being Georgia and the other being either Alabama or Texas A&M. They will have superior talent to us, not to mention LSU currently out recruiting us as well as on our schedule every year. So that's four teams that you potentially have to play. You could play all of them in one year if things went really bad, but most likely you're going to play at least two. It's difficult to think even Dan is going to be able to make that happen on a probability curve given what we're facing. So I'm separating those two to say thoughts on the first season, phenomenal, even better of a resource manager than we thought he'd be. And we thought very highly of him as that kind of guy. I think he proved he's an even better coach than I thought he was. And there's a little benefit to having Dan Mullen as your head coach, Alan, as well. He calls the plays which is huge. A lot of college football coaches sort of flow in and out with who their play caller is. And you see this with Nick Saban. Nick Saban's teams are better 
when he has an offensive guy he totally trusts, they're just better than when he's got a guy who he kind of, you know, is at war with. And you're never going to have to worry about that with Dan, which is a significant thing. I think the offense will be consistent. So all in all, major success. If we're looking back on it, and I'm going to say this because I know Tyler Rummery is going to get so mad when I say this. Would you take Dan Mullen or Scott Frost? <laughs> you know, time is going to tell the answer to that question. Dan Mullen, I think, is exactly who we thought he was, but even better, which is fantastic, which means I probably pause now when I answer that. I think I still swing swing for the fences with Scott Frost, but I'm pausing now, Tyler, to indicate that that's how impressed I am with what Dan has done on the field, is that what was once an automatic decision at the midway point of the season is now making me really think about it. Because if Dan can find a way to bring in top talent. I think he's already proven he's an elite football coach. So we're going to see what happens, but I'm I'm optimistic especially on the football side. I'm a little nervous about the recruiting. Maybe not even a little nervous. Sorry. I'm, I'm very nervous about <laughs> You're the hitting the panic button. I'm time. on the panic button and I'm very nervous about this year's recruiting, future recruiting. I'm I'm mid-level nervous. So we shall see. But I I loved the fact, Alan, that we have a 10-win season and that it wasn't smoke and mirrors. This was not the Will Muschamp year where we won a bunch of games barely, miraculously, and didn't get any better. This was different. This feels good. The program feels like it's back to a respectable level. And I don't think we're going to have to do too many podcasts in the future like we've done for so many years here where we're just talking about the buffoonery that is Florida football. And for that, I'm thankful. Thank you, Dan Mullen. Yeah, the SEC East no longer a dumpster fire. That was the joke. I mean, the SEC East, more wins than the West this year or against the West. So won that battle. Fascinating. The East is on the way up, maybe a little bit, trending up. We'll see if that continues. It looks that way. All right, let's talk about some team news. Players leaving a bunch. In fact, today before we recorded the pod, it was somewhat quiet. Then it heated up. Voshan Joseph, my man, my guy. High and low, very variable guy. I think he's more important to this team than a lot of Gator fans recognize, especially given how our roster was. Yeah. But he's testing the NFL. Mel Kuyper, uh, JT Raymond, another longtime fan of the show, his favorite guy, him and Todd McShay, he loves these guys, uh, have him as the number six inside linebacker. So that means he'll get drafted. Where he'll be, probably third to fifth round. Probably more like fourth or fifth round. So yeah, interesting choice by him. He's I leaving think. early. I think we talked about the fact that he'd probably be a second day pick and he should stay. And I think he should stay. I think this is a mistake by Voshan. Uh, I think you think that as well. Yeah. And we got Jordan Scarlett, not really in anyone's running back rankings. I think he knows that. I think he's had enough of the college experience, right? Right. And we talked about him being fine with him leaving, that he probably should. Nothing more that he's going to do. Running back's shelf life is really short. He's, you know, if he's good enough, he'll make the roster. NFL. Teams don't have a problem keeping a, a low-drafted or even undrafted running back. We've seen that over and over again. And I think what will be tough for him is he's not a special teams guy, really, per se. He plays special teams, but he's not like a, a Pierce. Right. Like a Pierce will be interesting in the NFL. He's a great special teams guy, and that's kind of how, yeah. how you got to make it. So anyway, uh, Polite, of course, we know going. He'll be, a, he'll be a solid pick. Chauncey Gardner, I think his draft stock, I think, is only going to increase. Some people have him as a second, as a uh, second or third-round pick, but I think in all reality— he might even climb up. I think he's a very smart player, putting a lot of good stuff on film. We'll miss him. And then the last of the underclassmen leaving, who's our highest rated prospect, Jawan Taylor. Yeah, I, I'm not convinced on him. Again, I think this is maybe a, lar- a large amount of like people looking at his sophomore tape. He was solid this year. And you know that you can get drafted as a right tackle, which is where I would project him in the NFL. Now, they might think that we're going to steal this guy and move him to left tackle, and he could do that. Uh, you know, if you're going to be picked in the first round, it's hard for me to say 
don't go first or second. So I think the team would have really benefited. He could have benefited if he moves over to the left side now. And if his future is at right tackle, whatever, leave now, you're fine. But tough for the Gators to lose him heading into next year, considering all the other guys are losing along the offensive line, like Martez, Ivy, Tyler Jordan, and Fred Johnson. So there's yes. four out of five gone. Yes. So that's, you know, if you're looking at the offseason, uh, I was talking with a uh, fan of the podcast, Matt Birch, and he, you know, asked, like, what a position group am I most concerned about? It's certainly offensive line. Now, for a different reason, but before we had guys who had kind of been younger or, un, I guess, not unproven, but underperforming, certainly. They got this turned into a decent group this year, solid group, and we're losing almost all of them. And the guy who's returning, Nick Buchanan, I don't know that he's going to start next year either. So that's the place where I'm, you know, we have a bunch of guys there. We're going to talk a lot about this. I'm not like unhopeful about it, but that's going to be the place again for the umpteenth year that we're worried about. Now in the future, I don't think that's going to be a place we're going to be worried about if John Hevesy stays and we keep this classes intact, but yeah, that's going to be a roller coaster next year, potentially. Yeah, I think we're really going to struggle there, which is maybe why Taylor's departure is the most important one for us. It, we're going to be in a lot of trouble next year. We do not have a full cupboard. We do not have a bunch of talented guys behind these guys. We'll get there, like you just mentioned. We are not there now. I think we're in a in a painful transition period, so that's going to be something to watch for next season. Also leaving, Polite, of course, as we know, right? Chauncey, gone, right? As we know, CC. Graduating. Yeah. Graduating. He's gone. Kari Clark, who's a guy that got a lot of playing time. But, you know, our defensive tackles, actually, let's give a little shot to them. I thought our D tackles played the best game of the year. They did Michigan. play well. They did. We had the most actual pressure off the ball that we've had all year long on it's film. A good sign. For so sure. that was nice to finally see that. So Kari Clark rides it on a high. And with that, those are all the guys we know as of right now. Right. Could be a few more. The January 14th, I think, is the deadline to declare for the NFL draft. Also, a few tran- transfers. Daquan Green is transferring. I think you'll probably see a few more of those guys filter out of the program here after the dust settles around this bowl game. I don't think you're going to see a mass exodus, but I, I wouldn't, I'd be surprised if we didn't see at least one or two more guys transfer out. Yeah, a couple of guys start to kind of see that this coaching staff doesn't favor them or that they just aren't. Yeah, it's just natural. I mean, playing time for sure. And then they're going to ride out, which is healthy and part of, I think, being a college football program that has some standards. Anyway, all right, Antonius Clayton, redshirted. If you're saying, who is Antonius Clayton? He is the highest rated recruit on our team. He was the number 27 overall player in the nation. He's a linebacker who's supposed to be prolifically good, getting redshirted. Should we give up on this guy? Is there hope? You know, for the year, I thought, I guess we're out of hope with him. But the fact that the staff agreed or, you know, thought about redshirting, there's a lot of guys ahead of him. He wasn't going to play over Jefferson or Polite. He's, a, I guess, a linebacker technically in our three forces. and could play defensive end. Um, so, yeah, a top 10 recruit in some services, 27th on that composite. Here's where I still have hope. The fact that he was willing to redshirt, most of these top guys who would look at that situation, they've been out or they would have, you know, just kind of quit or whatever. And I, I have a lot of respect for the fact that he was willing to redshirt as like a healthy junior. And the fact that this staff has shown that they can rehabilitate and get guys, you know, to be productive. Now, I don't know that I have hope that he's going to be the guy we thought coming in, that he's going to be a a first-round pick. But I think I'd be surprised if they didn't turn him into a valuable rotation guy, which 
is not what he is right now. And apparently he's willing to work hard and, you know, is not just a, a lazy kind of bust and he's not trying and that's why he's not playing. So hopefully the light will come on for him. The coaching staff can put him in a position to succeed. I, I had given up on him, but I think the fact that he was willing to redshirt says a lot about him. I think this does indicate, like you mentioned, the program development aspect of how Dan Mullen and the staff pays attention to things. I think I would like to say that every coach would pay attention to upperclassmen and their potential to redshirt given the way things go, but I don't think that's the case. So I think to look at him at the stage that he's at in his career and even consider that and say, hey, let's let's think about doing this. This makes sense for your own development is is solid. That's really detail-oriented management. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see him staying and investing in not only himself, but the team, because they're investing in him. They're telling him, you matter to us. We're trying to develop you. Let's save a year for you. And I don't think they're just selling him that to waste his time. I think if you clearly couldn't cut it, they just let him go. Graduate him on out. This is really rare for a guy. This this is pretty rare. So clearly I think this is a guy who wants it, who they think can contribute. So I like the story all the way around. Uh, But it is illustrative, Alan, of why we talk about having enough of these top 50 and top 100 guys because you just don't know which ones are going to hit. You can't just have one or two because you could have a Clayton or you could have, you know, right now a Grimes who's who's what was number forty one I think coming out of coming out of his class and and you know we don't even use him all that much either but you got to have enough of these guys to make it work. All right, let's look at some of the national news. Really interesting stuff out of Miami. Mark Richt, I think surprisingly to most people around the country, retired after their bowling after they got waxed by Wisconsin. And then kind of a funky college football story. So Manny Diaz, their defensive coordinator, had taken the Temple job only days before all this kind of Mark Rick. Obviously, abruptly retired. If Diaz had known, obviously he wouldn't have taken the Temple job. He would have just waited for that announcement. They bring him back. So he's the Temple coach for, you know, like 24 hours. Not that short. Wasn't a Billy Donovan type situation, but it was really short. What do you think about this? And do you think... Is this good or bad for us? The Mark Rick Doubt Manny Diaz in. Indifferent, maybe? I suppose it's good for us because for Mark Rick to snap retire, I was in Miami when this happened, and I was talking to a lot of Miami fans that weekend, and it was definitely a recurring tone that they were done and already out on Mark Rick, which was surprising to me given his history, but the narrative in South Florida uh, or was, I guess, the narrative now that it's over, was that Mark Richt was was sort of still stuck on his his power football, what won at Georgia. He had flip-flopped around during the season, didn't have a quarterback, obviously, which led to some problems, and that there were lots of irritation, not only between other coaches, but other players, and that essentially Mark Rick had lost maybe direction is the right word, and I think his snap retirement would indicate that. Uh, when they lost Manny Diaz, the Hurricane fans were pressing the panic button extraordinaire. Like he was the glue guy to them. So I think being down there and hearing all these stories and watching that unfold as I was there, it made sense to me through the eyes of a Hurricane fan. And that's what all the Hurricanes really seemed to want. So I think in that regard, they feel great. Manny Diaz was their guy. He was the reason they were Miami. Mark Rick was really just a nobody who had a name. That's how they at least feel. It doesn't mean it's not going to hold up that way. How that affects us, I suppose it negatively affects us because if they're right about that feeling, Manny Diaz can certainly recruit. He is a defensive coach, which, again, I think 
maybe it's good for us. We talked about this this idea that having Dan Mullen, an offensive guy who really understands offense and development in a state where there's some turmoil right now. You got UCF, which plays good offense. You have Florida State, which is dumpster fire. You have Miami, which was playing power football. Now they're coached by a defensive guy. Well, I know fired everyone, but he's still got to hire an offensive guy. I don't know. It seems okay to me, Alan. I do think, obviously, Manny Diaz is a very good recruiter. I think that it's probably slightly worse for us. I don't know if it like super moves the needle. He's still an unknown kind of quantity. Again, he was coaching Temple, not you know LSU or Alabama or some big school. So he's an up-and-comer. Uh, anyway. He's a total wild card to me. Yeah. In this coaching search, I like him as a person, you know, from afar. He's a guy who doesn't come from a traditional background. He wasn't a player at a high level. He's working for ESPN or something and then decided he wanted to start coaching. You know, previously, I think did work at Mississippi State with Dan Mullen, if I'm not, I could be incorrect about that, but been at several places, was at Texas. Yeah, uh, guy on the upswing, younger guy, never been a head coach before. So that, Again, that that creates this variance. Like he, we don't know. He could be awesome. He could be terrible. Definitely, there's a lot of flux in the state of Florida right now. Uh, I mean, obviously, Manny Diaz has been at Miami, so it's, he's not new to the program. FSU's in chaos right now. This is a moment. If this trend continues, where we could see Florida kind of taking control of the state, you know, UCF, whatever, they can have all the success. No one is going to go there over the other three programs, no matter how chaotic it might be, because it's just not a power five school. So this could be a good moment. Now, my main ideas could turn out to be awesome. I don't know that next year that's going to be the case. And, you know, if recruiting holds up, that could hurt us, but they, we don't play them every year. So that's not that bad. If he does turn out to be awesome, it could be good for us. If FSU is losing to them year in and year out. I'm intrigued by the hire. I thought Mark Rick was a good hire when they made it. And it didn't, you know, at first, People were excited. They were a top 10 team at some point last year, and they kind of fell off a cliff this year. They had a really disappointing season. I think anytime you have a really disappointing season when you have high hopes, there's going to be a lot of dissatisfaction. And there was in the Miami fan base, you know, all 10 of them who'd come to the game. So uh, I don't know what to think of this. I It's not bad for us right now, but I don't know if it's good for us either. All right. Favorite bowl game. Go. This was there's a lot of weird and wild ones. It's kind of some of I'm kind of coming around to bowl season. I don't think they mean anything, but I enjoy watching the kookiness. Two of my favorites, Washington State and Iowa State, they had a great game. It was weird. It was wild. Anytime you have Mike Leach involved, it's going to be a fun result. That was good. Do you have a favorite bowl game or bowl moment? How many of these did you watch? Uh, I did. I watched enough of them for little pieces. And like you said, I'm the bull Grinch, but I still, if college football is on, I'll still tune in, especially because you and I walked every bowl game, which actually connected yeah. me more there than normal. I think the Cheez-It Bowl was great. The Cheez-It Bowl uh, was awesome. It was very solid. Uh, I, I, this is not surprising. I obviously thoroughly enjoyed the, the UCF LSU game. That was the bowl game, I think, where I was rooting by far the hardest totally. for, for death of UCF. And it wasn't how I wanted it to be. But at the fact that LSU sat out like ten players that and actually getting them played, kicked out right and left, and like still beat UCF. Granted, I know they don't have their quarterback, but either way, like they're missing like twelve percent of their roster, and they're still able to win. And they probably should have won by three or four touchdowns. It felt really nice. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that game a little bit more in a second. Yeah, but I think really they were nice. down to four defensive backs, and I mean, one was, was a converted wide receiver. Yeah, and so they're just basically playing dudes that are on their roster, and like we'll beat you in a backyard game. I loved it. I thought that was my favorite one by far. All right, most surprising result. I, hmm. 
I would have said the Miami Wisconsin game because Wisconsin's been underachieving, but now I guess this news in retrospect maybe lessens that. I was kind of surprised that Auburn slaughtered Purdue. They put up a ton of points, and Auburn's a little struggle. I mean, not that Auburn won that game, but in the fashion that they won it. I, I don't know if you're Auburn, you're like, yes, we figured it out. Auburn tends to be one of these teams, I guess, if they roll you, they really can roll you. But I don't know. That was a. I was not expecting like 60 points out of them. Yeah, that was that was surprising. That was my number two. My number one is Florida, Michigan. Yeah, that probably is the most surprising. Both you and I picked a loss. Yeah. I don't think either of us thought we'd ever win by the score we won by. There's just no possible way that was going to happen. It was a bad matchup. They ran things on film that gave us problems. It's a power team. To me, that was a shocking result. We could have won. That was, that was not going to be surprising. But the way we won, the way we dominated, the way we held them to the rushing total, for me, I think that was the most surprising result in a good way. I would agree with that. And even the way that they got yardage, they're basically using like Haas wide receivers to like moss ball us and body us out. And you just can't do that consistently. They were they got some points and they got some, you know, big first downs, but that's not a, a strategy, you know, with our level of corners that's gonna work. You know, Trey Dean did not have his best game, certainly. Uh but yeah, that that's all they could do really. That's what they were relying on. And they couldn't, you know, that's not sustainable. So yeah, I agree. I I kind of took us out of the running for that because we talked about it so much, but I do think that was the most surprising result. All right, let's talk about two regular bowl games and then the playoff games and then the championship. Okay. All right, we talked a little bit already about UCF-LSU. 40-32, LSU wins this game. Your takeaway from this one? I was pulling so hard for LSU, it was strange. That was such a funny thing. I mean, that just goes to show the links that UCF fans have gone to antagonize the rest of college football. College football is so weird. Normally, you would love a Cinderella story, but when Cinderella's Cinderella is being a, a total a-hole. You don't root for her. Uh, and LSU, like you said, this should have been worse. They they kicked a lot of field goals. They didn't convert on some key plays. UCF had that pass in the game. Now, if they're playing, like, let's go full strength, full strength, McKenzie Milton. But on the other side, you got Greedy Williams and Delpit and all those guys. I I think LSU wins the game. They, you know, they should have run the ball every play, it seemed like, and then hit them with big pass plays. But I don't know. LSU was motivated, I guess, and UCF obviously was, and so you got a pretty good motivated matchup. And forty thirty two is not even close to that. It was. It should have been way worse. Should have been. Was not. Should have been. But it made for an exciting game. And Ed Orgeron, hats off to Ed Orgeron. I guess Before so. The year Vegas had them winning six games. Yeah, we had him maybe getting fired. All they did was go to the Fiesta Bowl and knock off the defending national champions. Uh, it's a nice carrot for them. <laughs> and the game the game was fun. It was entertaining. I loved how LSU was like writing on the whiteboard like this yeah. is the SEC and like, you know, random little national things, champs, national wall. champs and all this stuff. Like I thought that was just that's what you want in a bowl game. It's theater. And they were giving yeah. me theater. And that's why I really, really enjoyed it. And if I'm a UCF fan, I actually feel really good about myself. Keep in mind that you have a backup quarterback who's barely played. You're playing an SEC team. I don't care if they're missing half their roster. You're a non-Power 5 conference. True. You you acquitted yourself very well there. I, I think you have nothing to hang your head about. And like you mentioned, people would like UCF. They would enjoy It would UCF. be like Boise State. They would be rooting for them. But their fans are ridiculous. Are absolutely ridiculous. And I, I shared a, a box at the at the Miami, uh, you know, the, the venue of the Hard Rock Stadium, which is as a Dolphins fan. I don't know why they didn't knock down and rebuild it. But either way, I shared I shared 
that venue with some UCF fans. And they were equally obnoxious before the game about how good they were and how they could beat other people. And it's just, it's a delusion. Get out of here. I don't know that they're any less delusional, Alan. All right. No, no. That doesn't go away that easily. Maybe, maybe a very surprising result to some. Not so surprising to me because it fits the bowl theory entirely here of what's going on. All-State Sugar Bowl, Texas 28, Georgia 21. This game was dominated by Texas. The yeah, it wasn't that close. not reflective of how significantly Texas dominated Georgia. I thought Georgia was going to get off the mat at some point and make a game of it. Technically, I guess they did, but they, I don't know, stubbed their toe over and over and over again, just could not get it together. They obviously were, you know, not ready for this game. I think they were just spent the month pouting, I guess. I don't know. You can't talk about how Notre Dame and Oklahoma shouldn't be in the playoff and go lay an egg against Texas. Texas is a good team. I, I was impressed by them, you know, because they they couldn't just line up and, and beat Georgia head-to-head. They had to uh, be creative. They had to use their advantages. They had to really want it, and they did. Uh, Ellinger is a little bowling ball. It didn't seem like for a lot of the game that, that, that UGA wanted any any part of him. Yeah, Georgia's tackling was was pretty laughable. There were times they just didn't. For an SEC team that likes to tackle, they were not interested in tackling. But maybe more importantly, Alan, if you're a Georgia fan and you watch the way that Fromm played that game, yeah. I mean, he could not hit the broad side of a barn. These guys were open. And, and Justin it, Fields is sitting there on the sideline. Uh, and I mean, certainly... They never even thought about putting him in, Certainly there's 0% doubt that he already transferred and they created a nice little media narrative so it didn't look bad for them. You know, the report was that he packed up all his stuff and left and they basically talked to him and said, don't do that, stay and engage, whatever. And he did. He's their helmet on. They don't even put him in for a snap of this game when your starting quarterback is just terrible. Do you have any lingering questions if you're a Georgia fan that, wait a minute, are we going to really get rid of our five-star number two overall recruit who, by the way, was like neck and neck with Trevor Lawrence in a lot of recruiting scenarios where Trevor Lawrence lighting the world on fire, and now we got this guy who laid a huge egg here in this game? Yeah, How do those, you feel about that? It's Well, I guess it's those two competing narratives. Bowl games don't matter, and yeah, they kind of do if you look like if you look either awesome or if you look terrible. Now losing to Texas wouldn't have been like a bad thing, especially if you play well. There's a couple fluky things happen, you know, fumble punt or something like that. Fromm's receivers did not do him any favors. I think Holloman, who torched us, couldn't catch anything. Uh, you know, Swift fumbles. Swift looked like he was high the whole game to me. I, I don't know. So the stuff that Fromm usually has going for him, uh, he wasn't getting any help, but he did not elevate them at all. Like you said, sailing a ton of throws. He looked bad. I, I wonder if Justin Fields is even like available to play, quote-unquote, not that he wasn't eligible, that, but he wasn't going to play because he didn't want to get hurt. And why play not only a meaningless bowl game, but in a, for a program where he's not going to be there anymore. But you would think at that point, if you wanted to spark at all, you put him – I guess if you're the coaching staff and he's leaving – why undermine Fromm to put in a guy who's gone? So I, I guess if you're a Georgia fan, you don't feel great about Fromm, but if he comes out next year and lights it up, no one's going to care. There are concerns there, though, for sure. This, yes. If you the off-season, season, noisy offseason. Go read any Georgia message board, and even with their success, it's the power of recruiting rankings. There's a fear that, wait a minute, why aren't we playing the higher-ranked guy, which a lot of times isn't true, but you know, not a great showing by Fromm. And if you're the quarterback in bowl games, Allen, you should be the most consistent because you don't have to get tackled or tackle someone. You're just throwing a football. 
it's understandable that defensive players on Georgia don't want to tackle Texas players playing really hard in the bowl game. Doesn't matter. I get that, especially after their season came out. But bad look for Georgia. They talked a lot of trash on Twitter, lit up Insta during during those two playoff games, only to lose to Texas, which is not so great for them. I thoroughly enjoyed it, by the way. I love watching <laughs> Georgia lose. I'm all about it. All right, the playoff games. So the committee bestows upon us the two greatest matchups college football has ever seen. The first one, Notre Dame 3, Clemson 30. Yeah, it seemed like Notre Dame was going to keep this close for a while, and then Clemson rolled them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you keep Notre Dame out of the playoff. If they go undefeated with that record, I mean, I'd, I'd, looking back, I don't know how what I would have done differently. I mean, I think UGA had their chance against Alabama, and, and they didn't win. Uh, and Ohio State, you know, get out of here with them. You know, they – they basically should have lost to Maryland. They got waxed by Purdue, who obviously isn't a juggernaut. So I don't, I don't hate the committee for this, but I think everyone knew this was going to be the lines for these two games were bigger than any lines of all the other games. So the fact that Clemson won is not surprising. Thirty to three is a not a great look for Notre Dame, <laughs> for my guy Brian Kelly, uh, but impressive result for Clemson. Although I don't think that. I necessarily watch that game more like they are unstoppable. And not a lot the committee can do, Alan. They're they're stuck with picking four teams. You know, I think, A, we need more teams. Yes, you may get some games like this. In any sport, you're going to have, especially college sports, some teams that are just dominant. And that's part of it. You're not going to alleviate the, the potential blowout scenario that you're getting in this regard. I think eight teams helps. I think it's more importantly, Notre Dame should be mandated to join a conference. They must join a conference. But the, what, would that, what of, would that change, though? They have to play a conference championship. They've got something to not look if, at. Compared not if to they're in the people. Big 12 or whatever. Well, fine. I don't care. Go to the Big 12. At least i got to play Texas and Oklahoma. I mean, they have to play everyone. They're I mean, lightly in the ACC, though. But they're not. But they're, the, the thing is, their schedule looked nice this year until it wasn't nice. They played the right. 91st ranked schedule. True. That's an impossibility. Even Clemson played, like, the 80th ranked well, schedule. Well, you know, teams like... Uh, USC, Stanford, Florida State were all down. Exactly. And that's not Notre Dame's fault. I'm not blaming them for that. But I think in general, at least if you're in a conference, there's way more like common opponent against other common opponent things. So I don't know. It frustrates me that Notre Dame is now, well, it's been like a million years since they've won a a New Year's bowl game or something. And not only that, they get annihilated, like systematically murdered. They're not on the same playing field. And look, Clemson Allen is good, but they're not that good. They're good. Don't get me wrong. They're a good football team. But like Notre Dame should not be losing 30-3 to to them. But they did. I'm frustrated. I don't like Notre Dame. I grew up as a Hurricane fan. I'll put that out there. There you go. They needed to be in the playoff. Fine. They deserved it, I guess. But you could see when they played USC the week before that that was... They they just weren't in that category. But what are you going to do? I don't know. I just think it's crazy you've got the system where one team gets to be outside all of it. That's ridiculous to me. What other sport was that happening? None. Zero. None. But it. it's crazy. It's tradition. Blah, blah, blah. Make them join a conference. Alan. Yeah, but I don't think that changes anything. They're, if you have an 18 playoff and they're in a conference or not in a conference, they would have been in the playoff. Oh, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm just sidebar. So Make you would have this conference. Okay, no, then just, you would have Clemson versus Notre Dame in round one. And no, the same I would result. have. Notre Dame probably would have played in the conference and lost a game because playing in a conference is different than not playing in a conference. I just think it means something. Eh, there's maybe. pressures of, 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 there's just, it's just different. It's like, Notre Dame, every game they play is like one game. They don't, it's not like you have the pressures of a conference chasing down someone in your, I don't know, you're playing against yourself. It's just a different thing. It's weird. It, it's it real. is weird. It's a real thing. It's different and it's real. I don't hate it. All right. Oklahoma, 
34, Alabama 45. Yours truly placed a $150 bet pregame on the minus 14 Bama spread, thinking that he was going Eesh. to print money. That that was going to be the easiest money he's ever made it should all have season been. long. It was 28 nothing. I'm sitting in the box, courtesy of one uh, one Dr. David Crabb, who decided Hey-o. that for his Christmas gift, he was going to fund his entire family a skybox of this game. He bought it early, which is actually pretty cheap. It was freaking yeah. dope. It was super great. I'm watching this game thinking, oh, I am printing my... I should have bet a grand <laughs> 28 nothing. And then it seems like, Alan, when I was there, Alabama really kind of just checked out of the game. 31-10 in the third quarter. They never felt threatened. The game got kind of close. If you watched on TV, it kind of got kind of exciting. There were a lot of Oklahoma fans there, so it felt noisy in the stadium. But watching from where I was sitting, you just got the impression that the team really didn't care, which I think is why Nick Saban went nuclear. They started making penalties. And yeah, they, a lot of penalties. I think they just knew that any time they really wanted, they were going to score in Oklahoma. And the game ended that way. Oklahoma gets onside kick. Alabama gets it. And right down the field, they're going to score to be like, okay, we're going we're gonna to kind of end this thing. So... I enjoyed the fact that the game got interesting. It was better than it being 60 nothing. I really did not like the fact that Bama won and I lost my bet. But my thoughts, <laughs> on, this, my thoughts on this game essentially were that Alabama is, is – if that's a week seven game and they're, and they're carrying, that game is probably 60 to 13. But they got up. They knew they had a championship game against Clemson. They know Clemson is going to give them all they can handle, and I think they shut it down mentally. I think they shut it down. They couldn't get it back. That's my narrative for that game. Yeah, we talked about this earlier. It's hard when you're playing a sport and you're cruising, everything's going so easy. And you it's just human nature. You you let up you let up. And they took their foot off the gas and they I guess they never really had to rev it back up. I mean, they were still playing and still trying, but I mean, obviously Oklahoma give them credit. They didn't want to be embarrassed and they kept playing hard. And I, and that was weird because I knew that Bama was going to score on them. I thought Oklahoma early on, if they had put a few more points on the board, the game would have been more interesting. Certainly like the dynamic of the game, but I was surprised that Bama at the beginning of the game was just able to shut them down entirely. Now Oklahoma got it going, but Bama did let up there. Very impressive showing by Alabama, but do we expect anything less? I guess you could say they didn't cover. So that was kind of a failure by them, certainly for your wallet, but I know here we are. Clemson, Bama, Year four, I mean, they're clearly the class of college football. I, I would say Ohio State's the only other team that I would put in this category of that is competing at their level currently. And you, if you had a healthy Urban Meyer, they probably don't lose some of their games and they're in the playoff. And I think they at least give these two teams a game. But nobody else seems like they can. Georgia, I guess, on the right day. But, you know, Georgia's capable of losing to Texas as well. So, Yeah, Georgia definitely can. They've been leading for all but nine That's snaps true. against Alabama. Clemson is interesting to me. They don't recruit. They're, they're let's call them a tier one point five. Okay. Because they they the impact players they do get the top one hundred guys they do get tend to be incredible. Yes. And so they're hitting on all cylinders. They get some guys. big guys every class. They like a top guy at every position. And those guys produce. They're not missing. You know, they're not Antonius Clayton, if you will. They're hitting. And so when you look at their roster composition, they have, you could argue, as many top 100 guys that are highly productive as, you know, when Alabama does, even Alabama gets three times more than them, which is what allows them to be competitive. Maybe more importantly, though, Alan, the ACC is awful. And Clemson, interesting year this year, right? They almost lose to Texas A&M. Jimbo Fisher gets it done. Then Jimbo Fisher plays a really close game against Alabama there for a while. I mean, a great showing from A&M. But what if Clemson is in the SEC West? 
I don't know that you see them holding up the standard Alabama is, which is what I'm saying. Right. To me, Alabama and Clemson are not on the same level. I don't think anyone's arguing that. Clemson, I think, is very, very good. I'm taking nothing away from Dabo. I think Dabo gets the benefit of facing Alabama in a one-game scenario, which, to all credit to him, he gives Alabama all they can handle seemingly every time they play. Now, it didn't happen last year when they played. We'll see what happens this year. Bama favored by six. That seems low to me. Freshman quarterback Trevor Lawrence, all-world. This guy, Trevor Lawrence, the highest-rated quarterback ever in the history of quarterback recruiting, which is not that long, keep in mind. Still, past 20, 25 years, he's your guy. Lived up to the billing and then some. It looks like Dabo Sweeney is obviously right to get rid of Kelly Bryant. Can a freshman beat Alabama? I want to say no. And that's what keeps me from giving Clemson a real shot in this game. If you watch Bama, they're they're not they're not elite, elite, elite on defense as they have been in the past. They got some studs, Quinton Williams, Mac Wilson. There's some guys, Deontay Thompson. Certainly, they are very talented, and they still might be the best defense in the country. Trevor Lawrence has impressed me. I, he makes all the throws. He still does enough questionable things. He's a true freshman to think that Alabama is going to take advantage of that. And Clemson on the back end, I think they might get eaten up by two in those receivers. They go down the field. I mean, the aggressiveness with which Tua puts the ball down the field if your corners aren't up to snuff, they're going to get freaking toasted. And I see that happening at least a few times in this game. And I don't know that Clemson's defensive line is going to be able to apply the kind of pressure that they have been on other opponents. I guess I could say that they've been lightly underwhelming for all the first round talent that they have along that defensive line. So at least in most games now, obviously they're, they're killing people, but I don't know that they have the kind of balanced defense that's going to really threaten Alabama. I mean, I don't think I can take Clemson here, even getting six points. I think the game will be closer than most of these. But if Alabama is right, if two is right, if people are healthy, I mean, who's stopping them? Not Clemson. I like Bama 30-17 in this one. Okay. I think it's going to be close. I do think it's going to be close. Uh, It may not be close, though. I could see a narrative where Bama just blows the doors off of them because Trevor Lawrence is a freshman and game pressure is a real thing. And if Bama gets up 14 nothing, I'm not so sure how he's going to respond. Now, the great thing about Trevor is he can make all the throws and he's also very smart. Uh, but he relies a lot, a lot on pure quarterback throws, one-on-one back shoulder throws, one-on-one vertical routes. Alabama plays that matchup zone, which wreaks a lot of havoc on that kind of guy, especially when he's young. I think if he was a sophomore, Clemson might even be favored in this game, Allen. That's how good Trevor Lawrence is. Right. But six points to a true freshman against a, a very good Nick Saban team that can score points, that seems really tough. That seems like an overreaction to me from Clemson's win against Notre Dame and Alabama's seemingly cruise control win against Oklahoma. Right. Uh, however, the line has stayed there. So the public also a little confused. Well, these games have been close. Line. Like yeah, they have been. two of the years, I mean, especially in the championship games, they've been close. Obviously, Alabama put it on them in the semis last year. I would be surprised if Lawrence didn't put a few balls in play. He takes some hits. He's aggressive with that because, you know, he's been so much better than everybody else. I don't think he's learned yet that he can't do that against an elite team because the ACC has been down. No Miami, no FSU. Virginia Tech was down. I mean, you had Syracuse, who's a decent, they're a solid team, but they're not an elite team. 
nobody's a challenge in this year. Nobody. And obviously Notre Dame wasn't up to snuff either. Bama's going to put the screws to him. I bet Nick Saban, and they've been watching that Clemson tape all year. They knew this was coming. They're going to see them in the first or second round. I bet they, you know, they're infinite number of analysts. I bet they've had people studying Clemson all year long. Because why not? They're clearly the best two teams. They're Clemson, there's no way they weren't going to win the ACC. They had to beat Pitt in the title game. So I, I think Alabama's going to be prepared for this. Now, if it was the first round game, I think they'd be even more prepared. They ha- they did have to prep for Oklahoma. But not enough. This doesn't. Clemson doesn't scare me enough. There's too many flaws. It's a freshman quarterback. Now, Trevor Lawrence could play the game of his life and they could win. Tua could get hurt. There's things that could happen. But I don't see the outcomes. There's not a lot of probability where Clemson blows out Alabama. And I see too many avenues where Alabama blows out Clemson. This line under seven feels like a nice line for me. Are you going to put any ducats down on this? I think I'm going to try to get my money back. Okay. Because I feel really good about this line. And so if I'm wrong then you'll hear about it when we come back on our next episode. And if you're wondering when that is, that's going to be in February after signing day. Signing day is February 6th. That's a Wednesday. Not entirely sure when we'll do the pod. Historically, we've done it the day after signing day, but it's too early now on our schedules to totally nail that down. But it will happen close to signing day, as it always does. And we will talk about where we finished, what it looks like, and that will be our next episode in the meantime of course again if you love the show love the content drop us a like on facebook follow us on twitter write us an email write us a message on your favorite medium whatever you want we'll get back to you we'll talk to you hit us up on patreon you know uh, we're here for you you got questions in the near term in the meantime before we go to our next episode again we're here for you hit us up uh, we've thoroughly enjoyed the 2018 football season it will officially put to bed when bama plays clemson on monday night it's been a great time it's been great to get 10 wins we will be with you, steering you through the off-season, the dreaded off-season, if you will. It's long. So you can count on the Gator Nation Football Podcast to carry you through it. Thanks always Indeed. for recommending us to your friends and your family. It's been amazing to see families, entire families, listen to the podcast. It's it's humbling for Alan and I. We, we appreciate every single one of you. We love that you love our content, love the show. We get a big kick out of doing it. And with that, we will close up the 2018 season. We'll see you back in February. When you're well-dressed, people say, Nice suit. When you're best-dressed, they say, Nice suit. The JCPenney Men's Best Dressed event is happening now. Score 50% off men's select suit separates, sport coats, and dress pants from Collection by Michael Strahan, Stafford, and JFJ Farrar. And for big and tall guys, shop Shaquille O'Neal, XLG, and more. Plus, get an extra 25% off with your JCPenney credit card and coupon. JCPenney. Offers valid 912 to 918. Credit offer subject to credit approval. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.